Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we have a special guest from a very special location. Great pleasure to welcome Regina Eisert to our podcast. Now, Regina is a marine scientist, biologist, and that's special enough, I think, for a policy podcast. But what makes it even more special is her location because we say hello to Regina, who is currently en route from Antarctica back to New Zealand. Hi, Regina. Hello, good afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is lovely. This is a premiere for us. You're connected to us via Starlink. You're somewhere in the Southern Sea. Correct me if I'm wrong. And Yes, that's correct. Yes. Uh, you're en route to Campbell Island? Campbell Island, yes. So it's the southernmost of the New Zealand subantarctic islands. So it's New Zealand territory, but at the moment we're on the high seas. And you have just left Antarctica. You were actually in Antarctica until a few days ago? Yes, correct. So I'm aboard the Heritage Adventure, which is a New Zealand-run adventure tourism vessel that also supports research. And we just had a, a regular trip, the January voyage from Bluff, of Aurora Bluff, down to McMurdo Sound and to the Ross Ice Shelf. Hmm. Now, we should probably explain a little bit how this interview came about. So first of all, we have known each other for a while. And then I published an article yes. about uh, the problems of uh, Wellington's local government and Wellington Water. And then I got an email from you or a message via LinkedIn on that piece and regards from Antarctica. And I thought, well, okay, that's where you are. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about it and maybe talk to us for the podcast? And that's how this conversation came about. Because actually, I thought, having known you for a few years, there are so many interesting things happening in Antarctic research and especially things that might even have a link to New Zealand policy discussions. But before we get to the policy bit, just tell us a bit about it. You've been to Antarctica many times. What was it like on your last visit just a few days ago? Yes, well, thank you very much for, for this opportunity. So I've been doing Antarctic research since 1996, starting with a PhD at Lincoln University on Waddell Seals and my very first trip to Antarctica and my actual first camping trip. Uh, was three weeks in a tent on the sea ice uh, in the middle of nowhere, McMurdo Sound. So that was my introduction to Antarctic research, and I've sort of been doing that pretty much ever since. Antarctic How many trips have you had to Antarctica now? 11. 11. So this is number 11 right now. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, literally. Yes, it's very cold. <laughs> <laughs> what, I mean, well, of it's summer now, of course. Summer. Yeah, and summer makes yeah, it really yes, warm. So what, was it, what were the temperatures when you left? It was only about minus something, minus three or minus. It was not not a not didn't register. But what makes a big difference is the wind chill. So we had one day that was a wee bit windy, and people were on deck and trying to take pictures, and they all ran away because it was windy. And the wind chill will massively change your heat loss, and it will make a big difference to how cold it is and how you can how much you can stay outside and how much time did you have on your most recent stint in antarctica so we're actually south of the antarctic circle for about two weeks i think so that's 67 degrees and then in we're inside antarctica is that's sort of taken from a policy perspective south of 60 so that's for most of the voyage so about three weeks or something like that Well, that's quite some time. And as I mentioned, you're just en route to Bluff, but from there on, you're actually turning straight back to Antarctica, is that right? Yes, that's right. So it's actually... Well, that sounds a bit crazy, actually. 
No, it's not. So scientifically, it's super exciting to do repeat measurements. Okay. So one thing we're planning to do is I will receive an instrument from NEWA to do aerosol measurements of the, over the Southern Ocean on that transect from Bluff down to the Ross Sea. And doing that repeatedly at different times of the year and between years, it's the kind of thing where the scientific data are really valuable because you can start seeing trends and you start seeing changes. And of course, if you want to make any kind of conclusion, it's always good to have more than one sample. But I imagine you shouldn't be prone to seasickness if you're doing that kind of voyage. No. <laughs> so far, so good. I actually, this is only my second voyage and I don't seem to get seasick. So I'm, I'm lucked out. Actually, when you told me that you're just basically traveling back and forth on a ship to Antarctica, I was surprised yes. because I thought actually most researchers in Antarctica would fly in and fly out. Is there much of a ship traffic from New Zealand to Antarctica? Yes. Okay. So let's, let's distinguish two things. Most Antarctic researchers and most Antarctic researchers in New Zealand. You're quite correct that in New Zealand, the, the classic, the conventional way to access Scott Base and McMurdo and the Italian station and Korean station is via the air bridge provided primarily by the US Defense Force. Worldwide, I think it's a bit of a draw. A lot of major Antarctic research nations actually access their stations or their study sites using ships. So New Zealand's a bit of a unique and a bit of a unique position of having very little marine support and have almost no access to their own base. Right. By a ship. So you do need to fly, really, if you're a New, Ze New Zealand scientist. Yeah, But you wouldn't much. be able so, to fly with a New Zealand plane. You would be flown by the Americans. Pretty much. So the Royal New Zealand, of course, does do a few flights every season. But the bulk of the transport of both passengers and cargo is basically tacked onto the back of the U.S. program. Actually, just out of interest, I mean, how many people fly to Antarctic from New Zealand every, every year? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but the U.S. obviously runs its main operations also through Christchurch, Christchurch being one of the five gateway cities. Mm -hmm. And they resupply their McMurdo station, which is the biggest station, has up to 1,250 people in summer, and also their South Pole station, which is supplied out of McMurdo. Mm -hmm. So I would say thousands. So I don't have, I'm sorry, I don't have the stats in front of me. So we're talking about um, basically daily or weekly flights? Yes. Something like that? And during the summer season, that's correct. So the main body, as I call me, but there's lots of jargon. Main body is beginning of October or very late September till January, beginning of February, and then everything sort of winds down. There used to be almost no flights. And then there was one week of flights in August, late August called Windfly. And that was to bring in personnel and equipment to the station for opening of the main season in September. Actually, and that was always the week in August. Does it make a difference mentally if you're flying to Antarctica compared to taking a ship? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's there's two big things I noticed. So one of them is you realize how bloody big the place is. We had a medevac on our last trip and we're very lucky that happened when we were still sort of within reach of McMurdo Station, we were able to go back and have the person flown out. But if that happens when you're halfway between New Zealand and Antarctica, you're out of luck because it's three days either way to mm -hmm. get anywhere. So it's very big. And that's point one. And the second, to answer your question, the second, I think, conceptual shift that's very interesting is when you fly, you perceive the ocean as a barrier. When you're on the ship, the ocean is your highway. 
So it gives you a very different idea about the connectivity between Antarctica, the continent, and the Southern Ocean, and New Zealand, and the wider Pacific. Which is hard to understand, perhaps, if, if you've never been there. Well, what kind of connectivity no. are we talking about? You look at the map, and what you see is just a big stretch of water. In, in what yeah. way are New Zealand <laughs> and Antarctica connected? Well, there's multiple ways, and some of these things are outside my area of expertise, so I'm probably going to explain this wrong. But the principal one, and this affects the rest of the world, so New Antarctica is the motor of the world's ocean currents, and it's basically the, 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 the driver of the world's heat exchange system, which all happens through ocean currents, right? And the, the water originates with the formation of meltwater from the Antarctic continent, and that sort of drives the rest of the ocean currents. That's how my colleagues have explained it to me. So there's this really obvious oceanographic connection. And then secondly, we get a lot of our climate from, especially New Zealand being quite close to Antarctica, we, a lot of our climate is determined by what happens in Antarctica. And then ecologically, we have, so there's this sort of bridge where you say, okay, when if ocean currents and climate uh, are determined by what happens in Antarctica, where the sea ice is melting and forming, then that also determines the marine primary production. And that's jargon for uh, how fertile the ocean is, how much fish you get and where that fish is and other things that humans are interested in from a commercial perspective. And then you have like, ecological links via seabirds and marine mammals that literally commute between the Southern Ocean uh, and New Zealand and Australia and the wider Pacific in both directions. So there's, for example, the mountain birds, or titi, which are culturally very, very important to southern Ngātahu. Mm-hmm. They fly all the way into the northern Ross Sea to feed during the chick provisioning st- stage. So there's these very obvious, very direct links between New Zealand and the Southern Ocean. So there are these biological links between New Zealand and Antarctica. There are also some research links. So, I mean, most New Zealanders yes. would be aware that New Zealand is engaged in Antarctica and does research, but we wouldn't know too much actually what's going on. But you've been there and you've done this research. So fill us in. What is New Zealand funding in Antarctica? What are we doing there? Oh, yes. So New Zealand has a number of leading positions, shall we say, where New Zealand researchers are recognized as excellent and world-leading And then also you have to remember that access to the Antarctic and knowledge of how to engage with the Antarctic and having a viable Antarctic program are unique value propositions for New Zealand that make it very popular with potential international collaborators. For example, there was the historic Andrew project, which that was all about drilling very deep into something in order to figure out what the climate used to be last time we had this much CO2 in the atmosphere. Very, very important data. Because Antarctica, the Antarctic ice and the sediments preserve all that information. And so New Zealand was leading that international uh, effort. And these were big countries that were partners, UK and Germany and, and so on, the US. And so New Zealand actually has an opportunity to be a global player. Antarctica is one of the few places where New Zealand sits at the table as an equal or as a leading partner for science and Uh, policy discussions around geopolitical aspects of looking after the southern hemisphere. And I imagine that the politics of dealing with Antarctica have become a bit more complicated in recent years? Yeah, so I mean, I am a scientist, so I'm not directly involved in the politics, obviously. But the way it's connected is that the currency of Antarctic diplomacy is and always has been science. 
because the continent has sort of been set aside for as a global commons in theory. Uh, the only reason to be in Antarctica and sort of your ticket, if you like, is to do research and to have a research station and maintain a research station and maintain a research program and to follow all the rules around environmental protection, uh, conservation of biota and, and, and various special features. So you basically can't play in Antarctica unless you've got a viable, incredible research program. And New Zealand has that, and New Zealand is investing heavily into that, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, so that's a really interesting one. I assume you're referring to the ongoing rebuild of New Zealand's base, Scott Base. Yes, because there was a lot of that in the media, lots of headlines, and some really eye-watering numbers being thrown around. Yes. Can you feel that actually when you're doing research, the money is at least arriving properly? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, this is my very personal opinion, and I think the whole rebuild situation is a bit problematic because I believe that the investment in a new base was not strictly necessary, and the an allocation of funds to a building is very disproportionate to the total allocation of funds. I mean, it'd be one thing if New Zealand was spending a billion dollars every year on maintaining its research presence on Antarctica and then you spend a little bit more to then re refresh your base. But this is a very large sum relative to the normal spending on research in Antarctica. So, And I very much question whether the most important thing we need is a flash new building. Well, I imagine even scientists need to stay somewhere when they're there. Yes, but do you know how much $500 million can buy you? That, that's a That's an entire, you could buy a state-of-the-art, ice-strengthened research ship for that. And probably put up your own satellite constellation so you have WiMAX everywhere. Mm. And you probably have some money left over to renovate existing existing scope base. I mean, you're an economist. I can't believe oh, I'm arguing with I'm, you about I'm, how much oh. $500 million. <laughs> no, look, I'm, I mean, I'm an economist. I'm, I'm just a bit surprised, actually, because most of the times when you're asking researchers um, they will always defend all their spending on their favorite pet projects and here we've got a researcher actually saying you're spending too much on us i find that interesting well i mean i when it, part of the problem is that i would argue that this is not even though it's billed as being for science and i appreciate that that may be even a genuine motivation i very much question whether we're getting 500 million dollars worth of value for science. So you're saying okay. it's just being spent on the wrong things? Yeah, and I mean, I appreciate that people might say I'm not I'm not eligible or I'm not, what do you say, I'm, I'm not the right person to make that call, but I'm making, as a scientist, so I was actually involved in the scientific committees around planning the rebuild till about 2020, and I think I complained one time too much and I didn't get invited anymore <laughs> after that. I am a very strong, so I'm very strongly opposed to the rebuild and have been from the get-go, and I can explain why that is. It's not, um, it, I have reasons, I'm not just No, just obviously. Uh, but, but, I mean, the other thing I would say is it makes it very hard for outsiders to understand how much money is actually needed to build in Antarctica. I mean, if you want to build something in New Zealand, um, you, you can go to Fletcher Building or you can go to Bunnings or yeah, Mitre yeah. 10 and you know roughly what you're dealing with. And I imagine the costs of get, actually getting building materials down to Antarctica 
and actually workers to do all of this must be prohibitive and probably by a factor 10 or 20 higher than building anything comparable in New Zealand. So it makes it hard for us, actually, who've never been there, to really understand the magnitudes that are actually required to build. Well, I mean, a lot of these are they're really basic decisions. So one really basic decision you have to make is to say, well, are we going to try and send more people to Antarctica year after year, or are we going to try and make uh, take advantage of modern technological developments and actually reduce our footprints? And the way I like to sum that up is 2024, why are we still driving tractors across the ice? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was great when Ed Hillary did it, but we really past that point, I would argue that uh, we should probably look into trying to reduce our footprint because the planes that fly to Antarctica and the ships that go to Antarctica, they're not running on hydrogen. They're running on very heavy fossil fuels. So, and Antarctica doesn't care whether you visit as a researcher or as a fisherman or as a tourist. The impact is impact. All right. So I think we should probably be putting our thinking caps on and try to think about, well, how can we get more science for less money and less impact. That's mm. point one. And w- one way to reduce impact is not to have these huge stations. Oh, I like, see. why? Yeah. Well, actually, that would have been one of my questions. I mean, who goes to Antarctica? Obviously, researchers like yourself, but probably also, well, tourists of all different kinds. So there are probably private tourists, but they're probably also organized tours by whatever, ministries, government, there are also fishermen, of course, involved in Antarctica. But can you give us an idea, actually, who is using Scott Base and um, has that changed over the years? Yeah, so what I've seen, this is so my personal, I don't have official statistics. It's just my my sort of personal impressions from 1996 when I was a PhD student and we didn't definitely did not have internet in Antarctica to, to today. So, first of all, tourism in Antarctica is very, very limited in the Ross sea sector in the part south of New Zealand. That is, there are a lot of tourist vessels going from South America because it's much, much closer. So That's there's the famous only Drake really, Passage, isn't it? Yes, that's right, the Drake Passage. And it's also, much, yeah, it's much quicker to get to Antarctica and it's much further north. It's more, the climate is more benign and so on. In terms of who gets to go to Scott Bay, so that is obviously, it's all managed through Crown Agent, the New Zealand Antarctic Institute with its trading name Antarctica New Zealand uh, under a con agent under MFAT, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And you have to, as a researcher, you basically have to get an MB grant or MBIE grant, research grant, or a master grant. And then you are sort of automatically entitled to go to Antarctica New Zealand, you know, obviously within reason and say, hey, I'd like to do this piece of science. I've got this, this money or actually you normally go to them when you're still in the application stage and say, I'm going to apply to study killer whales, Scott Base, I need a helicopter, I need some I need some field staff, I need some generators, I need X, Y, and Z, what do you, how do you feel about that? And they go, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Or they say, oh, no, that's really difficult. We might need to ask our Italian colleagues whether they can help us support that and so on. So that's the, that's the sort of normal path for researchers. And then who else gets to go? So obviously... Uh, there's uh, skilled personnel at Scott Base that need to run the base and provide field support. And there's a chef, cooks brilliant meals, you know, and there's all sorts of people that just take care of the base. Mm-hmm. And then you have visits from, and this is where it gets a bit murky. So you have visits from 
people that have a legitimate interest in seeing New Zealand's activities in Antarctica. For example, we get the head, the chair of the select committee for foreign affairs comes down. The person who's in charge of Antarctic affairs for MFAT often visits. We have, you know, a minister of finance or a minister of foreign affairs comes to visit. You know, people like that too, they can really see what's going on. And we've obviously just, just sent a former prime minister, Jacinda Dern visited. So you get those kinds of people. And that's that's all seems very good and very appropriate. But then you get a whole lot of other people and you go, why are you here again? <laughs> you know, for example, I was there one year and there were two lovely ladies who were Malaysian and nobody knew why they were there. I think they bumped into the then foreign minister at a party and expressed a wish to go to Antarctica and there they were and it was all very strange or we had filmmakers or we had well let's hope they make a, made a decent donation uh yeah I assume that was the idea but of course you can't sell trips to Antarctica as a government agency that mm -hmm. that is not a good look so I literally I have been at Scott base when there were more so-called VIP visitors than there were scientists on base and I'd find that very very interesting to be honest i find that very surprising because we've been told as the public that scott base is all about scientific research that's what we're doing there but it's from your description it sounds more like a five-star hotel in the cold yeah i i think that's probably overstating it a bit but i mean okay four star yeah <laughs> but i think that maybe the one of the one of the main reasons that we're getting the rebuild because it wasn't even four star it was very much one star it was not really fit for impressing potential vips so i think that was one of the reasons we got this really highly celebrated london architect in to design us a new base but you know so would it be fair to say it's getting a bit of a luxury makeover to make it more appealing not to researchers who are the, well, who should be the prime customers of Scott Base, but to the others who to really don't fair, have much to do with it? Researchers, yeah, to be fair, I mean, researchers, well, as I said, mentioned earlier, I, I attended many, many meetings starting in around 2015, talking about the Scott Base rebuild and what kinds of facilities should be there. But that takes us back to one of those, remember, I initially mentioned you've got these sort of very basic decisions to make and one basic decision that you make is do i want more or less impact on the antarctic do i want to send more people there every year or do i want to scale it back and use technology mm. you know smarter not harder that kind of thing and then the next thing is you say well do i want to collect information in samples in Antarctica and then process it in New Zealand where I have access not only to state-of-the-art scientific laboratories, but I'm also able to do things I'm not allowed to do in Antarctica. I tell you what, I'm a scientist. I spend a lot of my time in labs. The first thing a scientist does in a laboratory is generate hazardous waste. That's just what we do. And, and that may include things that are really quite benign and that you would be able to flush down the drain if you were in Christchurch or in Wellington with enough dilution, but none of that is allowed in Antarctica. You can't even have a fume hood mm -hmm. because a fume hood means you're venting. So let's say you're working with a solvent, mm -hmm. yeah, and that's bad for you and you need to have a fume hood. So you're working with a solvent extracting some some data, DNA or something and that you need to work in a fume hood, otherwise you're violating something, workplace safety standards. But you're not allowed to vent that stuff to the Antarctic environment because that's pollution and that's not allowed. So you've got a problem. There's mm -hmm. lots of stuff that are really, really basic scientific processes that are very difficult to do in Antarctica. And so the question is, why would you build scientific facilities in Antarctica 
at 10 times the cost and I made up that number. So I have no idea whether it's five times more expensive or 12 times more expensive, but it'll be a lot more expensive. Why would you do that when you have this unique opportunity? Christchurch is five hours away. You can literally collect your samples, bring them back to New Zealand and analyze them the same day if that's what you want to do. And that would probably mean that when you have research teams, half of the research team stays in New Zealand and the other half actually does the collection in Antarctica? This has never been tried. This is just, I'm just posing an alternative view on why I don't think it's cost effective, let's put it that way, to have extensive laboratory facilities on the ice, as we say, in Antarctica. There are some exceptions. For example, if you wanted to keep local animals alive. So let's just say you want to study some fish. And Antarctic fish are very specifically adapted to very cold water. They live at minus 1.9 degrees Celsius. And they also tend to be very sensitive to any change in temperature. So they don't like it when it gets to minus one or zero, they get heat stressed. So the easiest way, obviously, to keep those animals to study them is to have them in situ at the base with a mm. flow-through system. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of stuff makes sense. But having analytical facilities or anything like that it is, doesn't make sense. Right. You're a very unusual scientist because most scientists that I've ever heard are always asking for more funding. And they're almost well, ignorant of any kind of cost-benefit analyses. I mean, that's something that we do as economists. But you, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm stereotyping. Everybody needs more economists in their life, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I always say. I mean, but you think like an economist, you want to make it more efficient. <laughs> oh, that's a compliment. Yes, I do want to make it more efficient because I do recognize that even in a large economy, in New Zealand isn't a large economy, there's always limits and there's always opportunity costs. If you're giving me $10 million to chase killer whales around, Somebody isn't getting a hip replacement. Somebody isn't getting a hospital bed. And that actually I learned very early on because, in, in, you know, in discussion with some of the very interesting VIPs that came to Scott Base, like we had the head of the select committee and he, the, he looked at me and said, okay, that's all very well, but how does this benefit the New Zealand taxpayer? Because you have to remember as a scientist, you are there and other people are paying for you to be there. Mm. Yeah. So you have to generate value, in my opinion. And how do you think we would get a debate going in New Zealand to generate more value and get more bang for a buck? <laughs> yeah, well, that's very interesting. So the problem with values, uh, which I'm not value, which is easy, but values with an S at the end, I think the problem is that nobody agrees what those should be and what those are. So that would be kind of the first step, I think, is for people to agree, well, what are we actually doing there? And what should we be doing there? And what are the priorities and what things are not so important? And I, I will not presume to say what those are, although, of course, I have an opinion on those. But it's to come back to the rebuild, it's, it's not that I think we shouldn't spend more money on science. New Zealand is woefully behind as a percentage of GDP on R&D spending, which I'm sure you're aware. It's a sort of, you know, 1.5% or something, and most other developed countries are above three. So, yes, there could definitely be more money spent on science, don't get me wrong. But I don't need a $500 million base. Well, then I think we need to have a bit more of a debate on that. And when you're back <laughs> in New Zealand from all your research trips to Antarctica, maybe you can lead it. But for now? Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no you're not, not for you? Oh, you leave that I'm to the economists and politicians. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
Well, I think for now, we might just leave that there and wish you a productive and efficient research trip. Thank uh, you so much. And I uh, thank you very much for having time for us, actually, while you're on the high sea. And I hope you have a very safe journey. Now, first back to a bluff, then back to Antarctica, and eventually back to New Zealand. And I look forward to catching up with you when you're back here. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Regina. And thank you all for listening. And until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>